in the pilot where Paul is going to town, which is like, you know, four states over. And you hear the sweet little resilient voice of Morton Bulls Wilder narrating it, going, that's okay. We had our chores to comfort us. <laughs> <laughs> our children, let's watch that again. I say, that's okay. We had our chores to comfort us. So it's a whole while burning this show about what life used to be. There will be nightmares if you watch it with small children. They will most likely be yours, especially if you are a suburban mother and you observe how much rabbit stew has to be made for these people and what it took to do laundry. Okay, so every time I'm starting to feel knocked in pants, a little, little house on the prairie. So there's a book we were reading, A Little House on the Prairie, and Laura goes wide and like, I love every day of the week except for Sunday. And she launches into this description of Sunday. And the night before, they have to bathe and how much work it takes to bathe. And then they put on their fine clothes. But because they're in the middle of nowhere, they don't go anywhere. She sits on a bench, right? And that's what she does all day on Sunday as Pa reads the scriptures. She's not allowed to laugh. She's not allowed to play with the bulldog Jack. She does not like Sundays. And so the next day she wakes up, and I am glad it's Monday. Many days before it's Sunday, I guess. <laughs> the second thing that Sabbath keeping is not, but we act like it is, is a burden. And there's a whole historical development with the Sabbath that we can trace back. Say, where did it go from celebration to sadness? Or from feast to funeral? But today we're going to talk about what Sabbath keeping is. It's not a break. It's not just a day off. It's also not a burden. It's not a hard, ruling, legalistic thing. Um, any of you follow any lifestyle bloggers, lifestyle Instagrammers, this is a burnout lifestyle people. So they usually tend to start with like one thing, like, oh, this person, their thing is exercise, right? That's why they're famous, I guess. So you think of like Gwyneth Paltrow, I think she's an actress at one point, but now it's like Gwyneth is telling me what toothpaste to use, right? So that's a lifestyle blogger. That's a lifestyle Instagrammer. When you think about Sabbath, it's actually more of a lifestyle. It infiltrates everything that we do. It's not a break, and it's not a burden. Sabbath-keeping is a schedule-ordering and life-shaping practice that proclaims the character of God, the God who creates, who liberates, and who resurrects. I'm going to say it again. Sabbath-keeping is a schedule-ordering and life-shaping practice proclaiming the character of God, the God who creates, liberates, and resurrects going to start talking about how we proclaim the God who creates with Sabbath keeping. There's two narratives of the Sabbath commands being given. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's actually two narratives of the Ten Commandments being given. So we get two narratives of the Fourth Commandment, which is the Sabbath command. The first is in Exodus 20, and we can read that one now. Um, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them and rest on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So first I just need to say this and then when we move on, because we're going to talk about Sabbath tonight, we're not going to talk about work. But God the Creator proclaims the goodness of work. I have to say that first. 
The seventh day of resting is attached to the six days of work, right? Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all the work. So Sabbath keeping cannot be distorted into an excuse to not do the work, wherever you are, whatever season of life that you're in. Um, sometimes people do this, and they distort it as reason to not do work and to not take care of your responsibilities. Six days you will work. Work is good, and responsibilities commanded. Okay, let me say that and move on. Um, in Exodus 20, we have this description of creation and the reminder that on the seventh day God rested. Um, this Christian theologian named Karl Barth is famous for saying this. By resting, God declares as fully as possible just how very good creation is. Resting God takes pleasure in what he has made. He has no regrets, no need to go on to create a still better world. He rests. Jewish practice holds the observance of Shabbat, or Sabbath, at its very core. And Jewish thought recognizes that a God who can stop a work, such as creation, further emphasizes that he began that work. I'm going to repeat that. A God who can stop a work, such as creation, further emphasizes that he began that work. This is contrasted to endless, mindless labor. This is emphasizing that this is creative work. Meaning and reminding us that this world is an intentional, meaningful, purposeful creation. It's not the result of just natural laws at work, but the outcome of God's creativity. The quote here. The very fact that God abstained from activity on the seventh day is what enabled everything that had happened during the six days to become a whole and complete act of creativity. So according to this commandment, from Exodus 20, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, we follow God's pattern as our, our creator. This commandment reminds us whose we are, whose image we're made in, not just in how we work and create, but in how we rest. Creation was not complete until God rested. The resting was the completion. So there's something we can look at that's happened over the past couple hundred years that's also parallel our evolved and changing understanding of status. The Enlightenment know this is actually what introduced this idea of the individual. Right? That showed up with the Enlightenment, not earlier than that. With the concept of the individual came this seemingly liberating idea that we can make our own way. Right? We can make our lives. This is why Paul left the big woods and went to the prairie. We can make our own way. We are free to secure, secure our own future without answering to any other. We're not held by community or history or family. We can make our own path. Here's the twist. At the same time, being free to secure our future means that we are required to secure our future. Okay? I'm going to repeat that. We can make our own way equals we must make our own Enter. Scarcity, anxiety, restlessness, things never seen here at Wonder Mary. <laughs> and the constant, constant drumbeat of never, ever being done. Okay, so we look at creation in the Genesis story. So now we've looked at creation, now it's retold in the commandments. Go back to Genesis. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, 
because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so the six days of work, God declared them good. But the seventh day, he declares holy because he is a creator God who began the work and therefore completed the work. He's not a cog in a wheel, he's not a machine, and he's not part of the natural laws of science. He's an intentional, purposeful creator. So, when we fail to keep the Sabbath, we forget that we're created in the image of a creator who declared his work complete and holy when he stopped. Because he could stop. So why can't we stop? Are we mindless machines? Is it just push play and we go until our batteries run out? Do we live that way? Proclaiming the God who creates reminds us to stop. Number two, Sabbath keeping. In Sabbath keeping, we proclaim the God who liberates. Okay, so we did the first narrative of giving the command in Exodus 20. So the second narrative, giving the command, is in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 5, the command, the fourth commandment, is the same, but the reasoning is different. We're going to go to verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So in Exodus, it's talking about creation. In Deuteronomy, what is it talking about? The Exodus in Egypt. So in the book of Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is connected to the Israelites' freedom from slavery in Egypt. So, if you know your history of the Israelites, if you don't, sign up for a class in the Red Building. <laughs> That's where they're teaching it, okay? Remember, the law was given after they're led out of Egypt. So they lived as slaves in Egypt. They're free. The seas part. They get to Mount Sinai. The law is given. But this is fresh. They're fresh from their life as slaves in Egypt. And sometimes to those of us who feel familiar to the Bible, we forget that in a sense the Israelites are just getting to know God. And so they've been living in this system in Egypt, the Egyptian God. They don't really know who this God is. So beginning, he's the God of Moses. Now he's introducing himself. Hello, this is who I am. And they know him originally and initially as the God who led them out of Egypt. And what's happening here with the commandments is God saying, okay, it's time for a regime change. It's changing. Leadership is changing. You've been under Pharaoh's regime, and it's changing. The Ten Commandments we see as the rules for God. God's out, set out for this new life, but it's also how God introduces himself as their new leader. This is how it's going to be now, because this is who I am. So the first commandment in Deuteronomy is how he begins to introduce himself. Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's establishing himself in a distinct way from the other gods of Egypt. These other gods that the Israelites would have been familiar with. <clears throat> this is amazing. By saying, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, he's immediately saying something different than their understanding of these other false gods. He's saying, I see you. I understand what's been going on. I'm involved. I'm involved in the socioeconomic world that you exist in. I'm not some ethereal religious being out there. Because the land of Egypt was really intense and it was really hard. And I'm thinking that the memory of it was really fresh at this time. 
So we'll talk about the land of Egypt real quickly. Exodus 5, if you want to know what life is like in the land of Egypt, we're going to go through it. Um, slaves make bricks. Bricks are used for building supply cities for Pharaoh's wealth. A system has been designed to produce more and more surplus, and therefore there's always a need for more storage units, which need more bricks. And this requires bricks from the slave camps. And then surplus, anything that's extra wealth, is taken as a gift to the gods, this would be the Egyptian gods. And then the other really important thing we're mentioning is that obviously Pharaoh is a never-resting, harsh, and demanding manager. This is the leader they have known before Yahweh, before God. Walter Brueggemann says, into this system of hopeless weariness, hopeless weariness, erupts the God of the burning bush. In the second commandment, God goes on and he says, I have no other gods before me. And when he does that, he's establishing a level of exclusivity, which he then goes on to talk about in the next two commandments. Have no gods before me. Do not make any graven images and do not misuse my name. I'm the word of God. Take that. He's exclusive. Okay, so here's what's interesting. They just come from Pharaoh's world. Pharaoh was pretty exclusive too. So the idea of the leader being exclusive wasn't necessarily novel. Have no one else before me. I am it. Bow down me. That's how Pharaoh was. Except, and this is what blows your mind about never thought about ten commandments differently. The last six commandments of the ten have to do with caring for your neighbor, which is never what Pharaoh would have commanded. And what links the two? What links the first three that are about the exclusiveness of God and the last six that are about caring for the neighbor? The fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath. How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we bring it together? In the longest commandment God gives, the, the commandment to keep the Sabbath. With the Sabbath command, God is breaking Pharaoh's system of commodities. So this is what Pharaoh did. Everybody was a commodity. Right? What can you make for me? How hard can you work? What can you produce? How much can it get for me? A system that had no room for neighbors and only room for threats and competitors, anxiety and restlessness. Okay, I'm going to say that again. A system with no room for neighbors only room for threats and competitors, anxiety and restlessness. What a cute old goodness, right? How funny and quirky life was back then. How different from life now. How will we ever make the Bible know? <laughs> okay, so I've got this picture for you. There's a great article in the New York Times recently by a computer scientist. Basically saying, type there to your caption, that when Steve Jobs designed the original iPhone in 2007, he had no intention for it to become what it is So originally when Jobs de designed the iPhone, it was like, look at this cute iPod that can make phone calls, and if you're lost, help you out with maps. Like that was it. It was an iPod that calls people and has maps on it. He did not necessarily foresee internet connectivity with the smartphone and did not foresee apps. Interesting. He did not foresee what it has become, which I think is brilliantly illustrated in the second picture. So quote here. 
Under what I call the constant companion model, we now see our smartphone as always on portals to information. Instead of improving activities that we found important before this technology existed, this model changes what we pay attention to in the first place, often in ways designed to benefit the stock price of attention, economy, conglomerates, not our satisfaction and well being. The Sabbath command God is breaking up Pharaoh's system of the pursuit of commodities, a system with no room for neighbors, only room for threats and competitors, anxiety and restlessness. But at Mount Sinai, God's announcing that the regime has changed. We are under some regime. And as followers of God, we have to announce through Sabbath that it's changed. It was introduced to the Israelites during that change, but because human nature like, likes habit and routine, and they were used to working for one master, when God met them at Mount Sinai, he was introducing himself, and he did it with this command. And they screwed up. They went back to the old way. That's what the golden half was. Uh, well, we're kind of just used to doing it this way, God. Sometimes we don't realize what we think we're holding is actually holding us, like in that picture. How many of us are being held by a smartphone, perhaps representing different regimes? It could be addiction, consumerism, obsessive connection, narcissism, noise, busyness. Sabbath-keeping proclaims the God who liberates and reminds us that there has been a regime change. We are free from our cultural system that commodifies. Are we living free? Or are we making bricks for Pharaoh with endless demands? Do we live like there has been a change? Finally, Sabbath-keeping proclaims the God who resurrects. So, when you study the history of the Sabbath, turning into the history of Sunday, it's complicated. Um, you know, the original followers of Jesus were Jewish, so they had their Sabbath on Saturday. But eventually, for Christians, it evolved into observation on Sunday. Because Sunday was considered the holiest day in the Christian calendar as it remembered Christ's resurrection. So Jewish thought strongly emphasizes the connection of Sabbath with the God who creates and the God who liberates. But our distinct Christian identity leads us to proclaim also the God who resurrects. So Easter is coming. Many of us are pursuing perhaps Lenten practices of thinning the excess, of quieting the noise, of adding on, giving up, doing all sorts of different things to contemplate the journey to the cross. And this is all necessary and this is fruitful so that we can truly celebrate resurrection. But see, there's an important difference we have, we will always have, obviously, with those first followers of Jesus. As we move towards our celebration of resurrection, we have a sense of coming, right? I think it's April 24th. <laughs> they didn't have that sense. And I know Jesus told them quite a few times, but hindsight is always 20-20, right? They missed it, and when it happened, it totally freaked them out. And I think sometimes our biblical language lost that little bit. So Luke 24, um, Jesus has just appeared to, um, to the women at the tomb. And they were not to tell the men. It says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and saw the women cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling what happened. Okay, 
Words like marvel, I feel like just don't nail. Marveling is like, and another version says he was amazed. It's like he was freaked out. Somebody write that Bible, okay? <laughs> Somebody do that translation. I looked through all of them, and it just doesn't catch the like the angst and the anguish that these people are feeling. I think these words perhaps used to, but now they sound so positive. I look so marvel. Let's all marvel together. <laughs> what they're saying is he was freaked out. Um, see, before the Easter story gets to Jesus, it's a story about people who are grieving. People are devastated. They're confused, and they have no space and no compartment to understand what God is doing. God is doing a new thing, and they have no room for it. So how do they respond? Well, apparently they aren't marveling in a real positive way, because in the Gospel of Matthew, the angel tells the women not to be afraid, and that doesn't do it somehow. <laughs> So then Jesus has to repeat it. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Are you all afraid of anything? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I'm afraid of things. Okay, there's a lot of fear. The fear has increased for me. I feared less when I was in college. <laughs> I fear more things now. Sabbath keeping who proclaims a God who resurrects. That we may daily live expecting the new creation to be breaking through, and the impossible and the unexpected to be done regularly, and that we may not be afraid. It's a great quote here from N.T. Wright. What is there to be afraid of if Easter has dealt with the greatest monster of all, death itself? Why should you be afraid of anything if Jesus has been raised from the dead, if the old world has cracked open and a new world has been born? What is there to what if there fear if you stop, if we keep the Sabbath, if we live under a new regime, if we slow down and say no and step out on the world? What is there to fear? Do we fear our class, our grade, our parents, these people, outcomes, our future? God has conquered death. God has conquered death. The old is gone, the new has come. Sabbath-keeping, proclaiming the God who resurrects, reminds us throughout our week to be ever hopeful and unafraid. And that allows us to enter into places of impossibility. I love places of impossibility. My kids are in the public school down the street. I walk in that school and I like, smell the impossibility of this place. It's, uh, it's wild. God has called us into places of impossibility. And by creating intentional space to proclaim God's character as creator, as liberator, as the one who resurrects, we also create space to expect the unexpected and hope for the impossible and look for the new order to break in. I was a young life leader in college, and I was at a new high school, which is over in York County, and I was close to a high school student who had a wild party at her house, Things got really out of control, and the police got involved, and the news got involved because it involved inappropriate behavior from a parent, and it was all sorts of mess. All sorts of mess. And I was about 19, hanging out with my Spice Chime Red building, <laughs> <laughs> clearly able to take all of this on. And I went to talk to my area director at the time, his name Ben Connor, and I remember to this day, I took him the newspaper clippings, and I remember sitting in his office. And I remember really, really hoping that he would say I could just get out. I was hoping he'd use words like my will, 
insurance. <laughs> You're just a college kid. So I could be done because this was really, really messy and it felt really impossible. And do you know what he said? Because I'll remember this always. He said, wow. It looks like you're exactly where you should be. <laughs> when we proclaim the God who resurrects, we are reminded to be ever hopeful and unafraid. We welcome the impossible. Sabbath keeping creates the space to welcome God's unexpected and new work. You see, anxiety and restlessness lead to control, which lead to fear. And what do we have to fear? We proclaim the God who resurrects. So Sabbath keeping is a schedule ordering and life shaping practice that proclaims the very character of God, the God who creates the grace and resurrects. And then last night I read Benjamin's email about more group that she sent out, and I realized too late that I think she wanted to, me to give you an idea of how to keep the Sabbath. <laughs> but at this point, I was like two hours in, I'm propping the little house of prayer. <laughs> really, really focused on that. Giving you a lot of why, but there's some intention here. I'm going to give you my three themes. I'm going to explain. First one is consistency. When you begin Sabbath keeping, do it regularly. Okay, and be consistent. Start small and start today. I'm sure that's from some sort of infomercial. We've been using here. Okay, when you begin Sabbath keeping, do it regularly. Two, continuity. Not the same as consistency. Continuity. When you start. Let me tell you what's trendy. Love and kindness. 
Trust me. We have like all these kindness speaks at the schools. Be kind, Don't bully. Yes. I don't think I'm a bully over here. Is that done? You're not bullying anymore? Is that like that in the high school? <laughs> 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 Let's do what you've done. That is Probably not in your hashtag. Right? Self-care? Self-care is friendly. Yes. I would love to talk about all self-care. Okay, I'd love to do that research. Unfortunately, when I went to do my research about that, it did not lead me to self-care. I believe it didn't. There's some overlap, but the purpose is so different. The picture is so much bigger. Sabbath is not trending. Sabbath can be as radical. And what a powerful witness you can have to this. And what space you can create to serve your neighbor. And what space you can create to really reflect God's radical image in a culture that says you're never done, the culture that says you are here selling by, and a culture that says there's so much to be scared of because of yourselves. What would it be like to reclaim to this campus the character of the God who creates and liberates and resurrects? I have a four-year-old, and I love kids because I think they teach us things about God and his character in a moment. She has a room that is such a mess to go play that I worry if there were a fire, how to get to her. I think about this tonight. <laughs> I don't think that I won't get to her. I just think that I am going to kill my feet stepping up something small as I get to her. I think about this. <laughs> and she has all of these toys and she plays in a really amazing way. I've never had, a, of all my children, she plays in a really deep way. It's very healthy. plays very healthy. And then she goes to bed at night. And the room looks like nothing is done, right? And she goes to bed without a hair in the world. Color covers up over her. I see his mommy loves you, daddy loves you, Jesus loves you. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> a picture. Because here's the thing. Ruthie has no illusions that she's running any of this operation. <laughs> no illusions that she really is responsible for what's going on. In fact, should she participate more, it might get in the way sometimes. I won't make a theological leap there, but I think there could be something there. She has no illusion that she's in charge. She has no illusion that when she stops, it's all going to fall And I wonder sometimes when Christ calls us to be like children, if there's that sense of security and how small our place is in the world because of how big he is. And that's what allows us to last as well. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take some time to reflect. And there's a prayer team that's back, called back. So if you want to reflect, so I'm going to do that. I can do that silently, or you can do it. Um, but I'm going to pray for us now. Gracious God, thank you for your words, for your ancient, incredible, ever-living, powerful word. Thank you for meeting those Israelites at Mount Sinai and giving them the gift of who you are in the form of these commands to say, it's going to be different now, and this is how. Thank you for this group here. Thank you for the work that they do, which is incredible, in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of venues and categories. Lord, I pray for rest for each one. I pray that they may learn to stop, to know that 
things are different in the culture says. And then this Lord unafraid. I pray that in their rest they will feel more delight in them. Not for what they do, Lord, but for who they are and who you've created them to be. I pray for this community of the university. I pray that you will be with them as they work together to think how can they as a whole reflect that their image on campus. I thank you for your witness. I thank you for the love of you and your service of your fellow classmates here. I thank you for who you are and that we can believe in saying faith that you are with us in this room tonight. And I thank you for that promise. And you're ready to pray. Thank mm-hmm. you.